Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to February the 12th, 2013. That's 10 years ago, and uh, I'll tell you a couple things. Number one, out of the gate, why are we doing a rewind today? This this episode was originally set aside and should have ran as a rewind next Monday, not today. Next week, of course, is the week of TSP 23 workshop, and so there will be four rewinds next week. And I'll also let you guys know, I guess some announcements for you in today's show is new content, right? So number one is, like always, or like in the last few years recently, we will be live streaming um, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday all the indoor presentations. So like, I think most of those days we have like our first presentation around noon that's an indoor presentation. So all of the indoor presentations will be live streamed. So you'll have an abundance of content next week plus the rewinds today what i ended up doing was tagging one more rewind on to the end of that series and bringing this in and i'm doing this because i'm taking today i'm going to be spending some time with my grandkids and all but really we're going to go do our major supply run today while we don't have to fight with people on a weekend and uh, so we're now close enough to the workshop to start picking up a lot of the things that we generally kind of wait till this point to get our hands on because, you know, you, you want them to be as fresh as possible for people. So uh, we're going on a major supply run today and we're going to have lunch with the kids. It'll be fun. And I'm starting a little project with my grandson this afternoon as well at home. So uh, we'll be doing that. So that's announcement number one. I guess you want to call it that is that we will be live streaming in case you didn't know. Uh, number two is... As you guys know, I went to a four-show schedule recently, and it's been a not-so-perfect time to do it because it involved, it was right in the middle of getting ready for a workshop and a trip and all, so you're already cutting back. But once we come back from the workshop, and this might possibly happen next week as well, depending on whether or not between now and then I get on this little new project, we're going to go back to five shows a week. Don't worry, I'm not going to work hard at all to do this. I started thinking about these rewinds, and these rewinds actually take more effort than most people realize, I think. The first thing I have to do is I have to go through this buttload of shows and find a show that I haven't done a rewind of yet. And I usually do standalone shows for rewinds because of the format and the way that we do them. They just seem to work better. And that means that I'm not really generally pulling from the interviews. So somebody emailed me and they said, Jack, what about you know something on Fridays that's like a shortened version of a rewind? Instead of all this extra work you do, you just rerun a show. And I thought, well, that's not quite how I would want to do it. Um, if I'm running a show from 15 years ago or 12 years ago or 9 years ago, and it's got crap in it that is temporal. In other words, it is, you know, we're running a contest or something that was from... 15 years ago i don't want you guys to have to sit through that um uh, or a lot of like the preamble parts of the show and stuff are kind of anchored in the time and so i'd want to take that off but i also don't want to sit down and record every single week the preamble to you know like like i'm doing right now like this takes time 
So I've already figured this out. And what we're going to have, we're going to call it Flashback Fridays. And this is what's going to be cool about Flashback Fridays. I realize there is this immense library of content from interviews. And the interviews that I've done are like 99% great and 99% not based in some sort of time-based thing. Right, so it's not like something that like because I guess all the time like I need to be on because well that's not going to happen right so uh, unless it was an interview that bombed and there was a couple or it was really time based all I'm going to do is I'm going to start running the interviews from the very first interview we ever did which by the way was with uh, Glenn Tate author of the 299 Day series I'm pretty sure that was the first one and once I find it I'm just going to keep running the Friday flashbacks to whatever the next interview on the schedule was. And there was a time for a while we were doing two a week. So there's years and years and years of this content, and we could start with the oldest and move forward. I've made a single graphic for the Friday flashbacks. All I do is change the number on it, and I've already made the next 12. And what I'm going to be able to do is in about an hour, a quarter... That's a three-month period for people that don't measure time that way. About an hour a quarter, I will be able to do an entire quarter's worth of them, have them pre-scheduled and ready to go. So what will start happening next Friday, not maybe next Friday, if not next Friday, the Friday after that, will be every Friday our episodes will be the Friday flashbacks, and they will be interviews in consecutive order of how they were originally recorded. I think this will be cool. It will expose a lot of people that are part of this audience to content that they've never heard before. People generally don't go back heavily and listen. It's a shame because the wisdom that is in the interviews that we've done under, over the years is incredible. I mean, here just just think about some of the people that I've interviewed. Uh, on the permaculture side, people like Mark Shepard, right? Jeff Lawton, multiple times I've interviewed Jeff Lawton. Matt Powers, um, just incredible people. Joel Salatin has been on the show. And, and in other space, like we've had Gary Vaynerchuk on the show. Many of you probably have no idea that that ever happened. That happened in the Arkansas years. So we've had an interview with Gary Vaynerchuk. We've had Ron Paul on the show. You know, Adam Curry's been on the Survival Podcast. That's one that won't get replayed as a flashback for a hell of a long time, just because it's so recent in time. You know, we've had Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center on a couple times. Pretty amazing dude. James Howard Kunstler, pretty amazing author uh, that writes some pretty amazing uh, post-apocalyptic novels. We had him on. You know, and those are just larger names. We've had so many people on about so many diverse topics that I think doing this Friday, Friday flashback thing will bring a whole new level of value to the show. And let's be honest, folks, since we're talking about going back to when I lived in Arlington to begin this, most of you, you're going to hear tons of content you've never heard before. And even those of you that were around for some of these, when there's so much that you forgot that you didn't remember, right? So I think this is going to be great. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the episode that we're rewinding today. Uh, this is called Unusual and Everyday Plants for Food Hedges. Uh, and it was originally episode 1069. Uh, so we were a pretty mature podcast by 2013. Had had been around the block a few times at that point, five years in. Um, and it's it, it's a great episode because it is an option that a lot of people, I think, don't realize that they have. And especially if you're a younger person, uh, you can plant a fence. Right? You can plant a fence that if you live on a piece of property your entire life will outlive you and will feed you. 
and will act as a fence. Let's just, I mean, that alone. This is something that, like, we should be teaching this in school. Like, there's so many, like, I am so opposed to public school at this point, you can't even imagine it. But if we're going to have it, what if we, what if we actually were teaching children, like, how to graft trees together? Like, what value is there in knowing how to do grafting? One of the things that brings that up today is with hedge laying, one of the things you can actually do is you can graft trees together to increase the integrity of a a planted fence or a fedge. And again, we can do this with food that we can eat. That's a food hedge, fedge. This is one of the great techniques in permaculture. Uh, This was a great uh, show that we did, again, all the way back in 2013. And... What I would love to see is more and more people replace hedgerows with food hedges or fedges. Here's an example of of just the stupidity of modern society, right? So we have people right now, all they do is bitch about, and I understand why, right? But they bitch about inflation, and one of the biggest pain points for people with inflation is food. You know, food and housing probably being the two worst. And we have a lot of people that got themselves into their housing long enough ago that they haven't really felt the pain. And if you have, I know that sounds like I'm marginalizing. I'm not. I'm just saying there's a lot of people out there. They got the housing thing, you know, kind of locked in from seven years ago or five years ago. And, but they're still, they're, where they feel the pain is, is, is food. Because you got to eat, right? And food prices have gotten stupid. Okay, so we're complaining about the price of food. And in Texas, we have these trees. I don't even know what their real name is. They're not even trees. They're a really tall shrub. Everybody calls them a red tip. So they grow green, and the tips of the, the, the top leaves are this pretty red color, and that's why people plant them. So they plant these giant hedgerows that hedges out your neighbor. They're all over the place here. Usually here, we're even more dumb, so we put them up against a, a wooden privacy fence that rots, and now it's hard to serve as the fence because this giant fedge thing is there. But anyway, these things will generally live between 6 and 12 years, and really old ones are 15 years old. And then for no reason at all, they just decide life sucks, and they die. And then you have to tear all of that out and replace it with something, because it just looks awful once it dies. And then the ground is just full of this root system that, of course, if you let it rot, would be actually an asset, but nobody does. So they end up paying a landscaping company a buttload of money to, in general, do what? Plant new, new red tips. I'm not kidding. Like, isn't that an asinine kind of on-the-treadmill type mindset? When that could have been done, you know, in Texas, pomegranates will survive. Imagine a pomegranate fedge. Or if you're in a northern climate, like a hazelnut fedge. There's so many, and you can do mixed ones, and we'll talk about all of that in today's episode. So just think about the fool's errand of living in a society where people complain about food not costing too much money, and they could be producing food, you know, and taking marginal land, your edge, and producing food, you know, if you timed it right, you could produce food through a big time of the year by having things that are available at different times in different sectors of your fedge. And of course, this can go all the way around the property, including relatively small lots. That's a lot of linear space. If you add up what is the total perimeter of even the backyard of a relatively small suburban lot with these fedges. 
Anyway, just some thoughts. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back. And as I do this, I will tell you, I will be back tomorrow with a regularly scheduled episode. We have a pretty cool interview coming this week on Wednesday. It'll be pretty much a normal week otherwise. Uh, but today, again, I had to do this. So anyway, we are rewinding back February the 12th, 2013. Uh, originally episode 1069, Unusual and Everyday Plants for Food Hedges, a.k.a. Fedges. And remember, you can always help support this show. How? Just do your online shopping starting where? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Anyway, with that said, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Fedges and hedges, and what's the difference? And the real answer is, there ain't a daggone bit of difference at all between a hedge and a fedge, except in our modern world, uh, a hedge with something in it that's edible or a food hedge has become something not quite the most likely thing that you'll see. Um, there's this plant down here in Texas. I don't know the scientific name. Actually, I do know the scientific name. I just don't speak Latin really well, so I generally don't say Latinaic names. I'll try it. Photinia, I believe, is the Latinaic name for them. P-H-O-T-I-N-I-A. Photinia. Uh, if it was a Spanish word, it would be Fotinia. Anyway, so um, these Fotinias are red tips, as everybody calls them around here. Real popular hedgerow plant. So it works like this. You look, you buy one of these little postage stamp lots with a McMansion on it. Uh, you got your privacy fence is six foot tall, but you look at the backyard, and because the house is elevated from you can see right over the fence, and your neighbor's back there, and you don't look at him anymore. So you run down to Home Depot or Lowe's, and you pick up about 20 of these here Fotinias. And you dig some holes in the ground, you stick them back there, and you turn your water sprinkler on, and within about two years, those potinias are up higher than the fence, and they'll grow up to about 12 feet, and you can trim them at any layer you want in between, and you don't have to look at your neighbor anymore. And that's what's become a hedge. It's done with all different types of evergreens and all different types of, of plants. Sometimes the hedgerows are just for artistic purposes. They're really not to screen anything out. They're cut low. They're manicured. The bushes are rounded and artistic and whatever. But they don't do anything. They just sit there. They might block some wind or block a view, but there's nothing that comes out of them that's of any value. And they's primarily, you know, the functionality is either something to look at or to block a view. That's what hedges have become today. You know, it wasn't always so. It wasn't always so. It used to be that a hedge was a tool. It was a multi-purpose tool. It was a multi-tool, like a leatherman that grew out of the ground. It worked like this. You were a farmer. You had maybe 20 or 30 or 40 acres you were managing, or maybe even 10. And you're a farmer back, I mean, before electricity, before there were many people in America, maybe before there were any people in America, and, you know, Native Americans and, and things like that, maybe the first colonists, maybe before that, 1500s all across Europe, 1400s all across Europe. And, and you'd say to yourself, well, I got, you know, this paddock shift thing we just had Paul Wheaton on to talk about with chickens and livestock and moving them from one pasture to the next. This is a new. This is millions, well, millions is probably exaggerating, but this is as old as mankind's relationship with animals. It doesn't take men real long to figure out, especially in the days before CAFOs and feedlots and trucks and fossil fuels, if I graze my sheep on this one spot every day for a little while, it becomes a mud hole and nothing will ever grow here again. But if I move them every day, then it'll get better and better for me and for the sheep, and that's what I want. So you have shepherds that just move the sheep around with a dog and follow them all day. But if you're trying to run a farm, 
You don't really have time to be out there, you know, with your dog and your your staff knocking the sheep in the butt every time it tries to go out of the area you want it in for the day. You need a way to keep it there. Well, fencing is as old as neighbors, I think. But let's think about what it would take to build a fence in 1500. You, you just didn't go down to Home Depot and say, yeah, I'd like a 25, uh, 6-foot high by 8-foot uh, dog-eared cedar privacy fence panels. And until the 1800s, you didn't go down and buy some barbed wire. Um, you couldn't just run out and buy a bunch of T-posts and a, and, a, and a pounder to pound it in the ground. You had to go out and start cutting trees down. Okay, You had to cut a tree down, and you had to cut a lot of them down to build a fence. And you had to figure out how you were going to get the poles that you were going to take from the trees. And think about how valuable timber was, and think about how long it would take to make one fence post. Right? I mean, you start to understand that it wasn't so simple. It just wasn't so simple. So what they did is they looked around them and they said, what grows fast and we can push it together and suckers, that means it pushes other things out of the ground and spreads. And they found things like filberts and willow and, and these other plants that were just naturally predisposed to grow together quickly. And they would find a place where they're growing already. They'd take roots cuttings and dig them up or propagate them through, you know, through stem cuttings or seed or whatever it was that that particular plant, uh, would, would propagate for humans with. And they'd start planting them much closer together than you would normally plant them. They would basically make a thicket that was long and narrow instead of wide and deep. And then once the tree would grow to a certain height, sometimes they would prune it to maintain a height. But a lot of times what they would do is actually partway cut through the branch. So only cut through one side. Lean the branch over. You do this in the fall or the winter when the tree's dormant and at rest and it can handle the stress. There's, it's cooler. It's not having to deal with drought. And that tree sits there and as spring comes and it begins to take up water, that wound you've created heals, but now the tree's growing horizontally. And they weave them in, into each other. And within a couple years, you could have that whole 30 or 40 acres paddocked off into one acre, half acre, five acre, whatever size you wanted, paddocks. And even if you needed to do some fencing, you greatly reduced the fencing. You had this living thing that, you know, once a year in the winter when you were kind of slow anyway, you'd go out there and do a little bit of maintenance on it. And you could then, when your children grew up on that farm and you handed it down to them, It worked for them, and then it worked for their great-grandchildren, and then it worked for their great-great-grandchildren. And every once in a while, you might have to kind of recharge one of these. You might even have to totally redo one at some point if the system basically runs its life cycle. But if you kept bringing in new plants and letting them self-propagate and clearing out what's excessive, and you got all of this lifelong multi-generational fencing for free. Well, it didn't take long for them to go, you know what? If this bramble thing that doesn't really do anything for me can do this, maybe I could do this with blackberries or filberts or, hey, you know what, if we use willow, we can't really eat that, but some of the livestock like the young shoot, so we can take some of that and give that as fodder to our livestock. But, hey, you know, you make you weave things out of willow, so we can get a yield there for weaving. Or, you know, if we grow willow just the right way and we get it to sprout up, we can go through every year and take that sprouting off, turn that into charcoal, and we've got something that artists would use for sketching. Now I've got another commodity. Or, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we plant a bunch of apples 
and lop them off at about six feet, plant them way too close to each other, and start grafting their limbs into each other. And now we have a hedgerow of apples. We could do this with. So it didn't take long at all for people to start saying, hey, why don't we put edibles into these hedges? And whatever was like falling off, excessive or rotted, would fall to the ground. And when you move your animals through there, they would pick up the waste. And that did not count as waste. Because you didn't run down again to tractor supply to buy a bag of feed. right? If your cattle didn't eat, you had two choices. Make sure there's enough food for them to grow. Harvest and do your own haying or fodder systeming. And I don't mean fodder like we talk about today. I'm talking about silage, basically. Or buy hay, trucked in by cart and horse or oxen from another farm and basically go broke because you can only afford to do that for so long. Right? There was no trains, there was no planes, there were no automobiles, and the hedge was a system that allowed people to function in that type of a society. So how does hedging and fedging fit into preparedness? I just told you. Right? If it was a system that worked for people in that day and age, it's a system that can work for us today and help ensure our sustainability and survival going forward. Cool, huh? The, the key is... That we have to start looking at it though in a modern view because we don't have the same needs and even if half of what we rely and depend on was gone tomorrow, we'd still have an abundance of resources beyond what a person in 1500 had. Plain and simple. We can lose, we can lose 70% of what we, what we would consider technological marvel and luxury. We could go 70% backwards. Right, and we would still be light years ahead of people from 1550, and that means we can do things a little bit differently, but we can also learn from what they did, and then we can take modern technologies and modern viewpoints and bring them into it, and apply disciplines like hugelkultur, permaculture to it, and turbocharge it for specific gains, and we can learn something from the terrible red tip. What's my biggest problem with these red tip hedges other than they're unproductive and you have to work on them and take care of them and water them and fertilize them and uh, they just, you know, what's my problem on that? They tend to just die. They just get sick and they die. I mean, big, beautiful rows of them and then like they start turning brown and like by the end of that season they're dead. And then you just plant new ones and then they live for, you know, 10 years, 12 years, 8 years, whatever it is and then they die. Well, The reason they die is not really that there's anything wrong with a red tip bush. It's because we're practicing monoculture yet again. That hedgerow is nothing but red tips. So we can do a hedgerow of filberts, and that is going to be much more useful to us. Filberts, European hazelnuts, you know, basically something like that. Um, and, and it'll probably have a much more likelihood of survival long term. It's a hardier plant. It's a lot more self-propagating. It suckers with a lot more vigorousness. Um, it drops a lot of nuts. It's gonna it's gonna reproduce somewhat on its own. It's gonna have some multi-generational components to it all by itself. But sooner or later, it can wear itself out. Like these ancient head systems eventually had to be kind of redone. Um, and, and hopefully, what you did on your farm back then is you did enough of them that when one needed to be redone, you could just kind of rest that area until you got that one back up or put in some temporary fencing because these guys would put up fencing with whatever they had and then that material was so valuable, it didn't stay there forever. They would take it and use it somewhere else, 
Right, So that was the system back then. But with what we know about permaculture today, if we start building a multi-species hedge, a multi-layered hedge, we extend its viability. And if certain parts of it begin to have problems, like let's say we've run out kind of the, the life cycle of gooseberries that are in there, we can begin to replace those with something else. We can open those areas and replace them with new gooseberries or a new variety that will do better. Or we can just let the surrounding other say, you know what, there's not going to be gooseberries in here anymore. Or we're going to only have them in this particular part over here where they're doing well. And we can let the other things that are there become and replace and patch the hole. So it works like a forest system. So we can do these things now. Um, and that's part of like what I want to talk about right now is like, so you can put layers into a hedge system. Instead of just having uniform height and length and width of filberts, we could take something that's rather low-growing, like blackberry, on the outside of our hedges, and we could have maybe blackberry, blueberry, raspberry, growing up to four feet, six feet, something like that, depending on the variety. And we could pull back on a second tier and have a higher-growing species, especially if this hedge is facing south when we're in the northern hemisphere. So your lower plant, so we can almost put a food forest structure. We could almost go a three-tier, multi-tier, right? We could do a very low-growing uh, hedges like low bush blueberries with raspberries and blackberries and currants behind that coming up to something that's more of a tree-sized thing like dwarf fruit, fruit trees planted at heavy densities, grafting them together, and now you've got this multi-stage system that faces south. You might not be able to pull that off as well on a north-facing hedgerow. You might have to go with a different standpoint, but you could probably do very similar things on an east and a west-facing hedgerow as long as there's enough space to allow enough solar aspect in there. When I say solar aspect, I mean allow enough sunlight in based on the angles of the sun throughout the year and the growth periods and what else is around it to shade it out, if, if you're not familiar with the term. So that's that starts to take it into a whole new world for us. The next thing we have to ask ourselves is, do we really need our hedges to be continuous for them to be effective? So I talked about using them to fence animals in, but there's no reason that we can't run a hedge to a certain point and leave a gap before we start our next row. We can even make them look continuous without them being continuous. What do you mean? So start thinking three-dimensionally. Put your, put your two hands like karate chops uh, across your body down on a table in front of you, right? So you've got your fingers, your your fingertips touching each other, and you're looking at like a little doorway you could open, right? Flap your hands back and forth. And then pull your right hand forward, push your left hand backward a little bit, and then slide them so they overlap. And you can build hedges like that, so that when you look from the front, it looks like they're continuous and closed, but you can walk out of an S-turn around the ends, if that makes sense. That's a, a way you can gain the physical screening, that you can gain... Um, the continuous look, and you can gain the privacy aspects, but you still leave it open so you haven't blocked off your ability to move from one place to another. Now, let's say that gap where that S-turn goes through is 8 feet or even 16 feet. That's a little bit of fencing, right? 16 feet of fencing is nothing. You can do that in a, in a, you know, a, a weekend project in a couple hours having a beer with a buddy you can put in 16 feet of fencing with a gate. So now you've got the hedgerow going, you've got the gate, now we have kind of a doorway that we've created by using non-continuous hedges. We can do this in a lot of different ways. We can, if we're going to use electro-fencing, which is little light net fencing that you know you would use for something like paddock shift today because it's easy to move, 
we can kind of plan around like where we would keep animals out of these hedge systems at certain times and let them in. There's, it doesn't just have to be this long, never-ending thing that blocks things in or out. We just start have to start getting creative with shape and texture. They don't have to go in straight lines. You know, when I watched uh, Seth Holzer build who culture beds, they made these big kind of S windings, and it created microclimates. So some areas being, being a little more recessed would be a little cooler or hotter if they were jutting out into the heat, or vice versa, depending on which way those mounds were, were facing. So we can do the same thing with our hedgerows and, and kind of put some texture into them, because nature doesn't do anything in straight lines. So maybe we shouldn't be either. We just have to get kind of into our head that the structure doesn't have to be what society has told us. Straight line, trim, same height, same width, all the way down, same plant in it. Nature doesn't work that way. And that's why we have these systems that, you know, people put in these hedgerows, they look beautiful, and then one day they just start to get sick, and nothing you do can fix them. Because whatever's gotten in there that's attacking the red tip or attacking, uh, you know, a holly or, or whatever it is, or even a rose, something that's beautiful and protective and useful, if it's one thing in there, once a pathogen gets in there, it's like in nirvana. Okay, I like to destroy roses, so guess what? I've got nothing but roses in both directions, so I'm just going to camp out here and live, and there's nothing impeding me to get from plant A to plant B to plant C to plant D. Now, plant A is a rose, and plant G is a rose, and I got all this other stuff there in between that I don't affect, whether I'm an insect pest, whether I'm an animal pest, or whether I'm a bacterial or microbe or fungus. I've got these obstacles in my way from spreading. This is why polyculture or multiculture of different species is more powerful than a monoculture because anything that affects these, these, these plants has got to deal with other systems and these multi-species support each other. So that's part of what we need to understand if we're going to do this in a really effective way in my view. Now, what if you already have fencing everywhere you're going to need a fence? Is a hedge still a good idea? I'd say yes, and I'd say for multiple reasons. Two is one and one is none. Your fence goes down, you still have your hedge. All right. My belief is if that's the case, don't put your hedge up against your fence. Leave plenty of room to even fit in like a tractor or a golf cart or a four-wheeler, uh, you, you know, so that you can walk the perimeter on the outside. That also allows you to harvest from both sides, and it steps back your hedge, which has edibles, a little bit from your fence. Maybe you go outside the fence and do a low hedging of some less productive things, so if we get into a situation where people are stealing, they have something to steal, right? That looks like it's not that big a deal, what's behind there, and it just is easier to take the, low, the actual low-hanging fruit in this standpoint, lots of thorns and briars and stuff on that exterior level. But if we have a fence and a hedge, we have two fences effectively. If the fence fails, we still have the hedge, right? And we can do spot repairs until we can come up with the funds or the resources to repair the actual fence if we get into that situation. It's also productive, right? I'm going to talk about a lot of productivity here in a bit, so I'll leave it at there. But you, your fence doesn't do anything except keep things in or out, right? And define the boundaries of your property. That's about all a fence does. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't feed your animals. It doesn't provide um, enrichment of the soil. It doesn't provide uh, mulch. It doesn't provide anything. It doesn't provide firewood. It doesn't provide jackedly crap. In fact, it's an expense. If your fence is an expense, not just when you put it in, but all fences need maintenance eventually, right? And they need to be replaced eventually. So you look at the cost of fencing and you realize it's a lot like a lawn in a way, except at least you can make a better justification for having one. All right, so that's why I think hedge systems make sense. 
Would hedge systems make sense in suburbia? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those of you that want to grow things in your front yard that give some resistance to that, it's actually a pretty cool thing. You put in a hedge group of hedges, and again, they don't have to be continuous, that look almost like your neighbors, except they're productive. And it just kind of sits there, and most people, they don't get it, right? So it's a way to be low, uh, low visibility with food production, even in suburbia. Um, and when it comes to selecting plants for your head system, you, I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff here. I'm going to start my list in just a second of these. I got 14 forgotten or unusual plants, and I've got some old standbys and some other thoughts, but here's the reality. It almost doesn't matter. Almost. So, what do I mean by almost? So, uh, if you've ever been to California, I've seen those great big redwood sequoias, right? That wouldn't make a good hedge. Okay, you're just in the realm of the ridiculous. Um, they self-prune up, so they don't have branches low. They are huge. They grow really fast. Um, they have massive water and fertility requirements. You wouldn't want one in the middle of most suburban areas. They won't grow in a lot of other parts of the United States. It's kind of unique environments and climates that they grow in. And they just wouldn't make a good hedge. Most things, though, could be turned into a hedge. If you take something like an apple tree, specifically if we want to keep the height down and we go with something like a semi-dwarf rootstock on our apples, and we put them into a good environment where they're going to get some irrigation until they establish and things like that, and good fertility, and other plants in there to support them, and we prune them off, and we just keep saying, you know what, you're not getting higher than six feet. And we start pulling out their branches and making them grow long and laterally, almost like a spellier, um, and start letting them branch out maybe a little bit in one direction, but much further than the other. We start grafting you know, two different apple limbs together so they start growing together. We can make a hedgerow out of apples as easy as anything else. Uh, one of the things on my list of great standbys is Chinese chestnut. I mean, it's, it's, it's something we think of as a huge tree, but we can, we can stunt its growth through manipulation. And eventually, even if we let it grow up, we can have basically hedgerows under large chestnut trees with them spaced out and kind of go into a weird, wonky, multi-layered food forest system that's not what we would normally think of. So before I go into these plants, I want you to understand that you can do it with almost anything you want. So that means when it comes to the selection of the plants, the things that we need to think about aren't really about hedging in themselves. It's that we need to think about what we want, and what will grow well in our environment. So I like gooseberries. I think they're extremely productive. I think they taste good. I think some of the large varieties are amazing. You get gooseberries that are the size of a giant grape or bigger than any grape you've ever seen. I would love to grow gooseberries. Gooseberries are not real fond of Zone 8, USDA Zone 8, where it gets to be 110 degrees, and they don't do well here. So I won't be doing a whole lot of gooseberries in a hedge down here, not because I don't like them, not because they wouldn't work well, and with thorns that are actually quite effective in beefing up a hedge's security aspects, but they just don't do well in my climate. So that's not something I'm going to want to do a lot of. I look at something like seaberry, and... I'm going to try it, but I'm probably not going to have that great a result, so I'm not going to rely on it that much. It's much more of a northern climate plant, and I'll talk about those in a second. So the first thing we want to know is, will it do well in our climate, period, before we even worry about it? The second thing is, what will it do for us? So if I look at something like, oh, I don't know, blackberry, which is good old standby. Do I like blackberries? Uh-huh, I like blackberries. Do I like to make blackberry mead? You bet. Do I like to make blackberry wheat beer? Yeah. Do I like to just eat blackberries? Yeah. 
Is there a market for fresh grown blackberries? You bet. Look at it. One little flat of 14 ounces of them in the store, like six bucks. So it, it, would, would chickens eat ras black raspberry? Yeah. Or blackberry? Yeah. Right? So, um, it's, it's a plant with all of this productivity and that I'll use. Now, if I hated blackberries, I probably wouldn't put blackberries in my, my veg unless I had family members that loved them. Right? So there's, that's kind of where you have to start accentuating and, and thinking differently as well. Instead of, I need these plants for a, a hedge, you need to think, what plants do I want and how do I configure them into a hedge? And if you do that, you'll get a lot cooler results in the end as far as I'm concerned. So let's start out with some plants that some of you may have never heard of, and, and we'll talk a little bit about each one as we go through the list. Well, the first one's kind of a bonus. It's guavas. And it's uh, Chilean or pineapple guavas are what we would want to grow here in, in, in the U.S. And if you're hearing guava, you're thinking, that sounds like a Southern California, South Florida, far South Texas thing, tropicals. I don't think we can do that. And if you live in, like, northern New York, you, you probably can't. Um, generally, you're looking at a recommendation of USDA Zone 8 or higher, which is actually quite a bit of the United States. But I absolutely know of people pulling it off with very little trouble in Zone 7 and getting decent yields out of them. So we can go down to at least Zone 7. And I would say that you can probably push Zone 6 with the right system. So if your hedgerow and the parts that have guavas in it has a south-facing exposure getting the sun and has uh, maybe a rocky formations that you've constructed around the roots of the guava and heavy mulch, and they're also surrounded by other trees and bushes because when they make a re recommendation, they think the way most people do, that you plant it in the middle of a field and it sits there and it gets enough water and nutrient, but it's totally exposed to the elements. We start going into hedgerows, we start accentuating that. We start getting less frost on our plants when you have you know higher overstory that prevents frost drop. So I think you can, again, push these into Zone 6. They were grown in southwest England. Uh, Queen Victoria actually loved Chilean guava, so that tells you that it can go uh, a heck of a lot further north uh, than a lot of people would think. Ireland and Cornwall, England have both uh, successfully grown Chilean guavas. Uh, they'll handle temperatures down to 14 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you have a lot of 10 degree days, you're, you're not going to do so well with these, but Again, when they say down to 14, that means that, you know, if there's an occasional spike downward with the right support systems around it, it would do pretty well. Pineapple guava has a tolerance down to about 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, that's pretty bitter cold. And I remember days in Pennsylvania when I was a kid um, with temperatures down into that range and, uh, and below. I remember being on a deer stand one day and it was like two below zero was the ambient and the wind chill was into the negative 20 range. And I eventually wondered why am I out in this crap. If the deer aren't moving, it's really kind of pointless. So there are parts of the United States where you're, you're not going to grow this, but in those areas I'd say, well, now you can look at gooseberries, right? So, But Chilean and pineapple guava is something that is unique. It's exotic. If you had it in your area, you would likely be the only one that had it. Uh, they kind of have a strawberry smell, a little bit tart. They're good for eating out of hand. There's probably a ton of different things we could do with them. And uh, it's something that you just don't see everywhere else. Next up, big standby for, for, for hedges and fedges, and making a big comeback in America, but something that's really been lost to antiquity, filberts. 
uh, which are hazels, but are really you know same as a hazelnut or similar to a hazelnut, but generally grow in smaller, shrubbier environments. The the advantages of filberts are huge. Um, one is that they have this vigorous suckering behavior. So if you start doing the math, right, and you start thinking about, okay, I want to do a blackberry fedge, mostly blackberries, at least the whole front of it I want to be blackberries. I don't do all this multi-layered stuff behind the blackberries. Sounds like a cool idea. Might do it in some places right here. And you start saying, well, I got 300 feet to take up, and I'll need a blackberry bush about every three feet And that's really not going to get me there as fast as I want. I'd actually like to drop that down every two feet, but I'm going to do three feet. I need a hundred of them, and I need a hundred blackberry plants at about five bucks a plant. I need five hundred dollars, and I'm going to have to wait. Hopefully, they won't die, and I got to plant them all. So you start to do the math. You start to realize that hey, you know, if I got a lot of of land to work with, and I'm going to do hundreds or thousands of feet of this stuff over time, anything I can do to cut my costs is a good idea. Well, if I start doing filberts and I start, you know, as they sucker, I just basically lob off the suckers that come the direction I don't want and train them to sucker in the direction I do, I can get a little bit away with a little bit more spacing in between these areas and, and get a lot more spreading habitat out of them. Uh, filberts are another thing, though, that a lot of people look at and they, and they just see it as something that, you know, it may, I can't do that here. So where can we grow filbert? Well, the answer is USDA zones 5 through 9. Uh, that's, that's the majority of the United States. And there's different varieties that will do different better in different areas. Some are a little bit more suited to cold environments or warm environments or dry environments. But pretty much anywhere that you can make sure that those plants get enough uh, nourishment, that they get enough deep soil that they can get into, that they get enough moisture, you're going to be able to grow filberts. There is an important thing to do, though, when you're growing hazels and filberts. You need to understand that they are not self-fertile. The guavas that I just talked about, Chilean and pineapple guavas, are self-fertile. I mean, you can plant one and no problem. You can plant ten of them that are all the exact same species, no problem. You'll get lots of guavas, more than you probably know what to do with. But when we look at something like filbert, they're not self-fertile. They need to have other species, to, to other different varieties of filberts to cross-pollinate with. So when you're sourcing them, if you find a place where they got them really cheap, and sometimes you can, and you get like 20 of them for 40 bucks, and I've seen them that low, 2 bucks a, a bare root plant, um, if they're all the same, and they might be, and you better assume they are, if not otherwise stated, you might have a problem with productivity. They might grow just fine, but unless someone else is growing something very similar around you with a, with a different variety, you might get low pollination crossing. So you want to, when you're doing filberts, specifically source different varieties that are known to do well with each other. And then we also have to look at what's called filbert blight, which is related to chestnut blight. They're very similar nut species. And eastern filbert blight. So usually if you're west of the Rockies, it's not a big problem. You can grow whatever you want. East of the Rockies, we have the blight problems with chestnuts, filberts, uh, etc. And uh, you want to get blight resistant or blight immune varieties if you're east of the Rockies. And if you do that, uh, filberts will be a great part of uh, your hedge uh, or your fedge, depending on if you feel the need to differentiate it by calling it what it is, which is a food hedge. Uh, next up, Nanking Cherry. Uh, Nanking Cherry is basically an Asian uh, plum, is it what it really is. They're these little bitty plums about the size of the cherry, so they call them cherries. They taste more cherry-like than plum-like. 
Um, they, they do quite well throughout a large part of the United States. Generally, you're looking USDA zones three to seven. Um, you get into two, you're, you're getting into tundra climates. So that's about as far on the cold side as most people are going to have to deal with. Uh, those of you in the tundra climates, like zone two and all, I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying most people aren't going to have to deal with your, your, uh, level of, uh, cold hardiness. And on the zone seven thing, uh, they will do better in cooler climates. Zone six, zone seven, zone five. These are like, those are your like sweet spots for nanking cherries. Uh, but they, you can grow them in zone eight. Uh, people are growing them successfully here in Texas. They appreciate if you're doing that moist, uh, somewhat microclimate cooler areas that you can create. And again, hedges, you can do this. You can see, we have to think beyond planting something in the middle of a yard, putting mulch around it, tying it up and waiting for it to grow. That if we have a hedgerow system and we look at our solar aspect, we can think about, well, in the summertime, when we're in the hottest part of the day, which is going to be, you know, around here, it's about noon to one. It starts to really ramp up and, you know, one through about seven o'clock at night in the middle of summer. Where are we going to allow this plant to get enough sunlight in the morning hours as the day's warming and keep it a little bit cooler in the afternoon and just build it into our hedgerow and we can push that eight. And then we've got a plant that's extremely productive. I mean, 10 of these things as part of your hedge system. It'll probably give you more of these little cherries than you could possibly use if you have a productive system. Uh, 20 of them would be insane. Uh, the birds like them. Your chickens will eat whatever falls to the ground. And they're beautiful, especially in the spring. The white flowers, the profuse blooms on them. That brings in a lot of pollinating insects, which has a great effect on all the rest of your plants. So they're a great plant to consider. Next one up is the Gumi. Okay, the Gumi is in the same family as Autumn Olive. And the problem I have whenever Gumi is uh, discussed uh, anywhere around uh, the Internet is that people want to immediately say, it could be invasive. It could, it's like Autumn Olives. Those things are everywhere. They planted them in the highway. There's millions of them. First of all, that's not as big a problem as people make it. Autumn olive is actually a very productive, very useful plant. And like its cousin, the Gumi, is a nitrogen fixer. And that gives it the ability to both be productive from a standpoint of food, hardy, highly, highly productive from just straight production, but to fix nitrogen into the soil so that it can be a nurse species for other plants. But the reality is when people say, well, it could be invasive, is they, they do not know they're asked from a hole in the ground. Um, the thing about autumn olive is if you have one autumn olive and you want to make more, you can plant seeds, you can do cuttings, it just goes. Um, those of us who have tried to propagate gumi through cuttings and through seed have found it all but impossible. And cuttings are about the only way that we seem to get anywhere with doing it. With seed, the, 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 the statement is it could take up to two years for it to germinate. That's a long time for it to dry up, blow away, be eaten by a bird, be crushed, be decomposed, etc. Gummies are just not an invasive threat at all. They just, they just don't propagate, uh, in anywhere near the, 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 the prolific nature necessary to take over as an invasive species. And they just never have been a problem or even, uh, an exp, uh, and let's call it an aggravated, not an aggravated problem, we call it a trumped up problem like autumn olive. Right? Just because the autumn olive's grown in a place doesn't mean that it's really done anything terrible. 
It's not like it's kudzu and it's killing other species or anything. But you could make a case for some areas for Otomolov being a little bit too aggressive. It just doesn't happen with Gumi. So you don't have any problems with that invasive species nature. Uh, Gumis look like little cherries, sort of. They have a, a flavor that it, it tastes like a Gumi. Uh, they come mainly from like the Ural Mountain areas and into the southern Ukraine. They do really well uh, in USDA zones 6 through 9. You can definitely push it cooler. You really have a hard time pushing it warmer. Zone 9 is tough on them as it is. And you, do, again, need to get them into a permaculture-style system with support species to handle those higher, hotter temperatures. Going down into zone 5, heavy mulch layers, supporting species, wind blocking, dropping a zone from a recommended, not a problem. Highly productive. I'm talking covered with these little gummy berries when you get an established adult tree. Planting them at about four foot apart makes a beautiful hedge. Seven foot apart puts them more into an orchard status. They look gorgeous when they have these berries on them. They look like a Christmas decoration in early spring or late fall, depending on what part of the range that you're in. I mean, they can produce kind of all over the map when they're actually productive based on the zone that they're in. I grew some in Arkansas. They did okay. They're established now. And uh, whoever buys that place will uh, will have a couple of them there. Um, I want to do a lot more this time around. And uh, it is interesting to note again that they're a nitrogen fixer, fixer. So what that means is that when the, when these things grow, they actually produce nitrogen nodules on the roots. That makes them a really advantageous thing to have in a food forest or a hedge system as a chop and drop crop. In other words, once it gets up to a certain height, we say, high enough for you, we cut it off and put it to the ground. Now, unlike a lot of leguminous trees that we actually plan to kill off in a food forest, they're going to be around for five or six years, and then they're going to atrophy off, and you know our main fruit and nut trees are going to take over and canopy over, and they're just going to keep adding to the soil. Maybe we don't want to chop and drop these gummies as aggressively as we do our leguminous species, especially since they're so hard to propagate. But you know what? We can do a little bit of it, and every time you take any kind of plant that produces nitrogen, like a legume, like a bean, like a bean-style tree, like a gummy tree... Uh, like a sea berry, it's also a nitrogen fixture we'll get to in a second, you chop it, what happens is the roots self-prune and it drops nitrogen into the soil, and that nitrogen becomes available to the other plants. So it's a fertilizing plant. That's part of why people are afraid. Most things that fix nitrogen, people are afraid of the invasive nature of them. The entire reason they're afraid of that is because they can grow in poor quality soils where other things can't because they can get atmospheric nitrogen, feed it to the bacterium that they have a symbiotic relationship, and turn non-fertile ground into fertile ground. So instead of being afraid of these things, we should be controlling them and utilizing them because that's what nature does with them. When, when these, these things take over an area, what that means is that place sucks, okay? When like locust or something just overtakes an area, it means that place, nothing else is gonna, it's part of the logical succession. And eventually, over time, even those systems will evolve on their own into higher systems, higher level systems. When controlled, though, these leguminous species can be used to accelerate that succession and take something that would take a 100 years for nature to do and man can do it in 10. So just a little side note on permaculture there and, and not overthinking the, uh, you know, what do you call the, uh, uh, 
invasive species component to these things. Nothing I'm giving you today really has too much potential for invasiveness. The next one's called the meddler, and I'm not going to uh, go too deep into it, uh, except to tell you that it's kind of an ancient crop that's that's lost its favor uh, with a lot of folks, that people just don't really even know about it anywhere. It grows about a one-inch fruit. It'll grow to about 10 inches t- or 10 feet tall, but you can trim it down and make it into hedge height. If you plant them at about four to six feet of distance, they make a good hedge. They can certainly be part of a hedge. They kind of look sort of like a little persimmon that's brownish is one way to think of them. And what makes them like persimmon to me is when you pick one, when it looks perfect to pick off of the tree, if you bite into it, it's an astringent piece of crap. You just wouldn't want to eat it. It's nasty. So it needs to go through a process called bledding, which is basically you take them off the tree and you set them on the countertop and you let them bled. And again, these things are about an inch, so they're not real big. They're about like a big cherry tomato in size. Once they bled and they, you pick them up and they feel soft, just kind of like this persimmon does, you take a spoon and start eating it and it tastes almost like cinnamon applesauce, what comes out of them. And uh, that's... Then they can be made into a jam. They can be done a lot of things with. I wouldn't grow like a half ton of these things. But they're an interesting, exotic, forgotten thing that you can add into a multi-species um, uh, system. And uh, they're you know something, again, that's been lost to time. And I think it's important that we uh, bring some of those back. One of the best species for making hedges that just gets overlooked because people think of it as a huge giant tree as a mulberry. Mulberries grow fast and they can be manipulated to be everything from a very flat espalier on the side of a fence, just like a flat, almost grown like a grapevine, to a giant huge tree. And it's all about pruning and, and how they're maintained. I've seen mulberry trees so big you couldn't get two men, couldn't put their arms around and touch each other's hands. And I've seen mulberries that are 15, 20 years old, uh, that are six foot tall, trimmed off into hedgerows. The beautiful thing about mulberry is it propagates very, very easily from cuttings. So it's something that if you make part of your system, whether it's part of hedging or whether it's part of a food forest, when you want more of them either to sell or to propagate elsewhere, you can propagate it from cuttings very, very quickly. Um, it's basically like a great big blackberry that grows in a tree. Chickens adore them. There's also white mulberry. So if you are worried about having um, birds drop berry-colored poo on your house and your car, and you have a smaller property where it's going to be too close and, and you're going to have a lot of that, you can go with the white species of mulberries and, and you won't have much of a problem. Generally accepted zones for mulberries, uh, USDA zones 5 to 9. Again, that's the majority of the United States. Uh, one thing to think about, though, when you're reproducing mulberries from cutting, if you started out with a grafted tree, um, and you're reproducing from cutting, you can get various different results, including if you've selected mulberries with dwarfing rootstock, um, you may have a problem maintaining the size of the tree that you want from cuttings because it won't have dwarfing rootstock. But again, I've seen mulberries, including you know hand-propagated mulberries, contorted into just about any kind of shape, size, and restricted growth uh, that you can imagine, 
And uh, there's, you know, there's, there's the potential to do that. There's the potential again, though, to within these hedge systems, nurse trees within the hedge systems and eventually allow some of your larger trees to canopy up more in a forest environment with the hedgerows growing within and underneath them. So it, this might be one tree that would work really well for that and provide a variety of resources. Pomegranate is another uh, really exceptional option for, for hedging. Um, these are also another thing that I think a lot of people believe that pomegranate is uh, uh, something that you just can't do anywhere except the tropics, and it's just not the case. You can push them down into zone 7. A zone 7 climate with really hot summers, they'll do just fine. If you get a zone cl 7 climate, it's more of like a maritime gentle summer climate with cooler summertime temperatures, they just they'll they'll live just fine, but they won't flower well and they won't fruit well. They need heat to flower and fruit. Um, but they were all over an apartment complex I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, in. And you hear Florida, you think oranges and all, but Jacksonville's too far north for oranges. Um, Jacksonville is actually listed as uh, USDA nine A or B or something like that. But r the reality is Jacksonville's a huge city. It's all of Duval County. And a lot of the Duval County area actually falls into Zone 8. Uh, and where I lived as a kid there, it was definitely Zone 8. And at the time, we were in the middle of a cooling period, which people think apparently at the time believed that it was from smog. But it was due to basically the Earth and its own solar activity. And we had very cold winters uh, for, for those years that I lived in Florida. I'm talking the early 80s. Man, we had some... Cold winters. I remember the old walking to the school bus or the school, depending on what age I was, uh, backwards with your hood up because the wind was in your face, chilling your ears. I remember seeing snow in March uh, one year in, in Jacksonville. So we might have been pushing more of a zone 7-ish, 8-ish, low end 8, you know, somewhere in that 7A or 7B, uh, 8A zone that they've subdivided now. Uh, at the time, and the pomegranates did great. They were all over the place. Um, they, it was a very interesting place to grow, but it's pro probably part of what you know really opened me up as an adult to how productive uh, landscaping plants could be. This apartment complex we lived in had plums and pomegranates and all different types of things planted all over the place that were just like landscaping, and no one really used it except the kids. We would, you know, hey, look, those are ripe. What is that? You know, and, and pomegranate, you know, palm wonderful juice and all wasn't out yet and we didn't know. And I remember one day I was in school and a teacher brought a pomegranate in and gave everybody a couple little kernels out of it to try it. And I went home, I'm like, Do you guys know what that is? And the parents are like, Oh, whatever, it's a fruit thing and it's messy and don't bring it in the house. But I mean I was in heaven and I would run around picking plums and you know so I got that exposure early on, but pomegranate, yes, it's for your warmer climates, but it's an amazing superfood, and if you live in zone 8 or higher, I would definitely consider recommending it as something you consider uh, using. Next up is roses. Everybody knows beautiful rose hedgerows, but what I specifically want to advise you to look into are Rosa Ragusa, or old-style English cottage roses. These are roses that grow really tall if you choose to let them six feet or seven feet tall in some situations, especially if they have something else working with them in support. They grow hips that are like the size of a grape, a decent sized grape. Big old juicy luscious hips. 
and they're a beautiful plant, and they have huge thorns, and they really can add a security aspect to your hedging, and they're very hardy. A lot of the stuff that you know you see people with roses today, baby in them, and trying to make them pray, and trying to get them to hold on and survive this and survive that, and fertilize them, and on and on and on. Man, these things are hardy. They they are kind of the original rose species, and again, a beautiful plant. Flowers throughout the year, especially if you bring in different species, lots of security, huge amounts of vitamin C, uh, great utilization of the hips. I've had rose hip soup, believe it or not, guys, rose hip tea, rose hip jelly. It's all good stuff. Next up today, the aronia. The aronia is another plant that's native to America, but the better varieties that we have, cultivated varieties today, actually come out of Europe. Uh, some actually from North American genes that were taken over there and worked with because they saw value where we didn't. <coughs> the aronia is a uh, blue blackberry. It, it, it looks absolutely beautiful um, in the fall because the leaves turn bright red. I mean, just a gorgeous scarlet red. Uh, if you Google aronia today, what you'll find are many, many supplement companies selling aronia juice, aronia capsules, aronia this, aronia that, because it has some of the highest antioxidant levels of all berry crops. Um, a couple of good selections for you to look at are called Viking, and the other is called Nero. Uh, and these will grow into a true shrub. So they like to grow at a three to six foot height, planted close together. They'll spread out. They'll interlock with each other. Um, and they'll have a really long life and a lot of productivity um, put into a hedge system. Instead of doing a whole hedge of aronias, if you put into a hedge system five or six of these things uh, across your multiple hedges, you would probably have more aronia than you knew what to do with. They also make a really great badass wine for those of you that like to vent. And I've never grown them or gotten enough quantity to try this, but from the ones that I've tasted and eaten, I gotta believe they would make a great beer, especially maybe a fruited wheat beer. Uh, next up, elderberries. Elderberries are something that used to be very common in America. They're easy to grow. They're easy to propagate. There's hundreds of varieties. They spread out into a hedge perfectly. Uh, the only downside to elderberries is they're small. So it takes a lot of picking to get, you know, enough elderberries to do much with, but they make a great wine. And if you did something like an elderberry and blackberry wine, you could use maybe 10%, 15% elderberries and blackberries being much easier to pick. But elders are something that you want to look at for that. Elders have a pretty wide area that you can grow them in. Officially, it's zones 3 to 8. I wouldn't put, try to push much into the zone 9 area. Uh, but 3 to 8 is uh, is just... You know, again, most of the U.S., that's generally going to be with your American elders. There are European elders, which the Europeans have done more work and have built some elderberries that are unique and different. Black Beauty is one that's amazingly gorgeous. Um, and you, you tend to have the European elders not quite able to get into that zone three, more of a four to eight range. Um, but again, that's still most of the United States. Um, another thing that can be done with elderberries that I think people really should try is you can go out and cut the, the blossom clusters when they are, uh, when they're in bloom and basically lightly batter and fry those. It's amazing. Fried flowers. I know it sounds a little bit weird, but it's absolutely amazing. And when you think about it, something like broccoli, broccoli is basically an unopened flower. Let your broccoli go to seed. All those little green, uh, clusters that you eat that are so yummy. And I don't know if you've ever tried it. Don't do it often. You're taking a superfood and making it into a junk food. But if you 
slice broccoli and, and in small enough components to do it and tempura batter and fry broccoli is pretty awesome. So it's kind of the same thing, but a lot more floral. It doesn't taste like broccoli. I'm just giving you an example of, you know, eating a fried flour is not exactly that far out of left field. One really awesome tip I'll give you offside the hedge things here today is when you have all of those squash blossoms in the summer, especially the male ones that aren't going to produce anything, go out and, you know, after the bees have had a chance to do their morning pollinating, get about 10 of those suckers, get some shrimp, okay, and uh, some pork, and make basically a mortar and pestle with garlic, and make basically a pork shrimp paste. Hear me out, all right? A little bit of garlic, a little bit of shallot in there, maybe a little bit of chili pepper. Take that paste, stuff your blossoms with it, close the top of it, roll that in something like potato starch, a really light thing that will crisp them up, and pan fry those. It'll blow you away. It'll absolutely blow your mind how awesome that is. So back to the elderberries. They're also very high in, uh, in vitamins uh, and antioxidants. So there's a value there. So we got something that makes wine. It makes juice. It's, the juice is a little bit bland. Sweetened changes it quite a bit. To me, elderberry wine is much better if it's like elderberry is a part of the wine. It's a component. A multi-layered fruit wine to me is better than most pure fruit, fruit wines. Elder's no exception. Again, most of the United States it'll grow, grows fast, gets into production in its second year. And that's the cool thing. A lot of these, uh, these plants I'm giving you today, like Nanking Cherry, Pomegranate, uh, things like that, they get into production very, very quick. I skipped over one I just noticed, Seaberry. Seaberry is something that's going to do much better in your, your climates that are further north. Um, it doesn't really like the heat very much. But you can bring it as far south as Zone 7 with reported decent results. Um, it's hugely beneficial as kind of a superfood, super juice. It has almost a passion fruit-like taste. There's actually tremendous varieties within sea berries. It's a nitrogen fixer, so again, you've got a plant that's actually enhancing the soil as it grows. It's so productive that in many commercial operations in Europe, the way they harvest it is they just cut the whole branch with all the berries on it off and then strip the berries from the branch because they're covered in thorns. So security aspect there as well. Ben Falk is growing many different varieties of these things up in Vermont. And it might be the case that if you can get your hands on some tasting and you can only grow one or two varieties of, of sea berry and you want to give it a shot, that you find the ones that maybe have the best flavor profile for you. Because I tried three different versions in uh, Vermont when I was up at uh, Ben Falk's place. And uh, there was it was surprisingly how variable it was, how different. Some was a lot tartar, some was a lot sweeter. They all had something going for them. The, the downside of sea berry, like elderberry, is they're tiny. So it takes a lot of picking to get a significant harvest. But again, um, you start growing veggies all over your property and gardens and food forests and all. And you start to end up with this grazing attitude. Like, I'm, I'm hungry. Instead of eating junk out of the refrigerator, I'm just going to kind of walk through and grab a little bit of this and a little bit of that and whatever's available. And we start living a lot more like our paleo ancestors that way. So there's other benefits that way as well. Currants are another one. Currants generally don't taste that great out of hand. But it's something you may want to look at. The beautiful thing about currants is they'll do well in shade. So if you have certain parts of a hedgerow that you, it's going to be shaded out to a point, for some reason you need to kind of plug up that hole, 
Currants are something that you could use there. Gooseberries, the same thing. They won't handle quite as much shade as currants. But gooseberries and currants, I kind of put together uh, for you as, as, as two plants to look at. They don't like the heat uh, at all. You, you, you want to keep those in your more northern climates. Currants are officially USDA zones 4 to 8. Gooseberries 3 to 8. But my experience has been as you push into zone 8, the productivity on both of them becomes limited and they don't like the heat. What you can do, though, again, is to look for shaded areas, microclimates, and things like that and get some success. But they're not something maybe you want to put a ton of effort into in your southern climates because there's things that you can grow that the northern climates can't grow. They're absolutely fabulous in climates like the northeastern United States, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Delaware, uh, or the northwestern climates where you stay into the zone four and higher, Montana, in the, you know, the, the, the alpine regions and things like that, the lower elevations. Just fabulous. You know, around the Flathead Lake area, it would just be a phenomenal place to grow things like that. I'll throw in one more that's a bonus. It's not on the actual show notes list, and that's called a Jostaberry, which is gooseberry current crosses. Um, that kind of wraps up. Uh, wait, I think I got one more for you. Uh, gojiberry, I almost forgot that one. Also known as wolfberry. Uh, this is something that's being sold dehydrated, pounded into powder, supplement this, supplement that. Uh, every Amway knockoff MLM company seems to be coming out with a Goji product because it's hugely high in amino acids, minerals, uh, vitamins. It's a great superfood. They make a wonderful tea, uh, a handful of dried Goji berries in, in hot water, uh, maybe a little bit of honey to sweeten that. You drink the water and eat the berries at the end of it. Uh, they're just a great plant. They, they're like a viney shrub, and that means if we plant them together, they can definitely be made into a hedge. But if we put them into our hedge system and use them more like a climber, more like a vining crop, uh, they can kind of serve in that layered system as well. So uh, one more for you, goji berry. Most of these plants are available from Rain Tree Nursery. I, I recommend them only because I've bought hundreds of dollars worth of trees and plants from Rain Tree, and I've only had one or two not make it through. And I was putting them into some pretty harsh environments, so I really can't even blame Rain Tree for that. The key with a lot of these things is to order them at the right time of the year, uh, the spring generally, especially with bare-rooted plants, and many of these are going to come in best affordable amounts in bare-rooted. Um, be careful buying things from your local Home Depot and, and things like that. I, I want to throw out a few more things that you can, you can add into your list of plants, though, uh, that are available when you're buying from Home Depots and things like that. And those are blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, and semi-dwarf fruit trees. Um, you want to be careful with your selections of varieties and making sure you bring variability in and understand that the people that order plants at Lowe's and Home Depot, no disrespect intended, but they sell what you buy. They don't sell necessarily what's best for your climate. They sell what's in supply. They sell what they can make the most margin on. So you have to do a little bit of research for yourself. But I've seen people around here in Texas, for instance, uh, getting raspberries, blueberries, uh, blackberries from Home Depot type stores and doing very well with them. Generally, they do best when they're put into these hedge systems, though. They're plants that, if you think about even like blueberries, when we used to pick blueberries, they would grow in like kind of these flat areas that were open and they would grow in this like basically like a big wide giant, not a hedge like we think of, but a natural hedge, which is this big clump. 
uh, blackberries, often you see them almost hedged themselves. You see them on, as an edge plant. So you see them on roadsides and things like that. So these are plants that predispose themselves to it. My one bonus to add to that is Chinese chestnut, which I've talked about a little bit already. But Chinese chestnut, when pruned right, grows really fast, gets in production within two or three years, huge amounts of nuts. It can be kind of trained into this bushy shape. Now, eventually, it's going to start to crown out no matter how much you prune it. But there's a long time in between there, and that can become an overstory over a hedgerow. Uh, so it's something that I wouldn't go putting, uh, you know, a hundred of them into a hundred feet or something like that. Maybe it's more of your corners and certain things of, of that nature or brought out multi-layered instead of being in your hedgerow, behind your hedgerows, uh, things like that. But it would be interested, interesting, I don't know if I got the guts to do it, to go ahead and plant, you know, 20 Chinese chestnuts in an area and plant them, you know, roughly six feet apart and graft them together and train them and try to hold them into a hedge and see what happens. It would be a very interesting thing. And talk about productivity uh, and talk about uh, a windbreak. I mean, you'd have a pretty awesome thing. Uh, and as you're trimming that wood off, you've got a great fuel wood. Uh, it's a great wood for working with if it's big enough to use for building things uh, or carving or things like that. And uh, just a great source that you can constantly basically pollard back and get more and more material uh, that's, that's really a great hardwood. So that was one I want to throw in. I got some final thoughts and some unique ideas. Um, I, I would think that one thing we could do, and I can't go into food forestry today. I'm already long on the show as I've been lately. But a food forest with a fedge is the herbaceous layer. So in other words, in a food forest system, we have trees, we have high trees, low trees, Vining crops, we come into a shrub layer, a herbaceous layer, uh, and then we have a, a ground cover layer and a rhizomial layer. We have all these layers. And people that uh, don't get permaculture go, what if I don't want seven layers? Well, the thing is you have them, right? The space is there. The layers are about the space, and nature occupies the space. Well, one thing that we could do is kind of build a hedge system that's uh, th that kind of takes the the shrub and, and, and herbaceous layers and pulls them out a bit and creates kind of a path at the edge before we go into our canopy and sub-canopy, as long as we plant something in there to occupy that space and maintain it. And that could be one way we could do this. We also do a full food forest system of a multi-tiered group of fedges. So you could do a really low fedge and then a mid-sized fedge, and then a semi-high fedge, and a very high fedge behind it, and basically have this hedge system that just steps down. That's going to work best with a southern solar aspect. But by doing that structure, if you can imagine it kind of stair-stepping up, so imagine something really low like a low-bush blueberry, coming up to a high-bush blackberry, coming up to, let's say, dwarf trees that are allowed to get up to about, or large hedges like Chilean guava to get up to about 12 feet, and behind that, kind of not even really attached, but just right there, large overstory trees like pecans and chestnuts, right? So we have basically a food forest, but we've, we've turned it into like a multi-tiered faceted of fedges. I don't know if that one will work. I'm just throwing it out there. Now, what I'm excited about is culture fedging. So imagine this. You figure out your fedge lines, your contours, how you want it to work. You lay wood on the ground, you pile dirt up on top of it, and you plant your hedges on top of hugel culture. Now you've got all the benefits of hugel culture, reduced, reduced or eliminated irrigation, 
and we can take lower hedge plants that maybe only get up four to six feet, and even if we do them on a small hoogle mound, we can bring them up a couple feet off of the ground and get a quicker windbreak, a quicker visual barrier, and all of the benefits that go with hoogle culture as well. I also think that we need to think about managing animals in a hedge or fedge system. By building multiple fedges, and basically if you think about Sepp Holzer style hugel culture, big ass, two meter high, six foot tall hugel mounds, they're kind of like dirt hedges that are covered with plants. And he moves his animals in between them, and it would be really easy then to move your animals to the parts of your hedges that have the most surplus in abundance of what you can use at any given time. Let them clean it up. Let them control the pests. Let them fertilize the area. Uh, if you're doing chop and drop, if you have animals that will eat shoots in, in tender parts of the trees, like goats, like cattle, bringing them in and, you're doing your, and letting them go ahead and process that, into manure and accelerate the nitrogen cycle. So there's a lot that we can do with that. And then, you know, kind of going back to the old time thinking of hedges being fences, if this is done in the right way with the right end in mind, basically your hedges do become your paddocks. And you could basically have a fedge-based paddock system. I mean, you call it pad fedging? I don't know, right? So we have food hedges controlling our paddocks. And even if we want to use electrofence at times, we still have kind of this, this secondary situation. So if we have an area that's maybe a half an acre hedged off, and we bring uh, our animals into that, and we electrofence it down to one quarter of one half of an acre or a twelfth of an acre, a standard suburban lot size, which is a great area to hold an animal in for a day or two, and they get out of that electrofencing. Well, now they're still contained in a, I've still got them in a secondary containment. And if I have a perimeter fence, I've got a tertiary containment. So it seems like there's this natural fit here, almost like these people in the 1500s that did this knew what they were doing. So there you go. There's a show on, on hedging, uh, specifically doing it with productive crops or fedge rows and different ways you could think about it. And this can be done. It can be as, as, as uh, tight of a hedge or as loose a hedge as you want. It could be a loose hedge that you could squeeze through, right? It could be something so tight that, man, you just don't ever want to try to get from side A to side B without going to an end or an opening. Uh, and it's all about how you want to do it. The, these things can be woven together by hand. Uh, they can just be vigorous suckers like filberts. You can actually graft them together if you want to get even tighter and, and, and build even more uh, resiliency into them. Some of the plants at a certain height can basically, again, the, the take old hedgerow laying technique was you get this tall piece that you don't want up that high anymore, and instead of whacking it off, we cut it and bend it over in the fall or winter. We interlock it into there, and when you know you, you don't cut through both sides, you're only cutting through one side of the limb. Kind of think about making an elbow, and you bend your arm over, and then that will start to grow, and it'll start sending vertical shoots up again. And next year we can do that again. That's a classic English hedge rowing or German hedge rowing technique. We can do that, but we don't have to. It's all about what we want to create. We're the architects of our landscape and our architect and our land in our architecture. But I want you to think about this in a final concept of things. If you have about an acre of land, which is far less than many people seem to be willing to 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 settle for, but we just say an acre and to make it easy. Um, an acre is about 200, if there's a perfect square, 208 feet by 208 feet. 
Let's throw 16 feet away. 400 linear feet of perimeter. Doesn't matter if it's a rectangle, a triangle, a trapezoid, a square. You're roughly looking at 400 linear feet. When you step in from your, your property line, if you don't put it dead on the property line, you have a perimeter fence, step in about 8 or 10 feet. Let's knock it down and say it's 370 linear feet. How much productivity without touching any of the center of your property, just by figuring out based on whether it's east, west, south, south and north, what makes the most sense, completely circumferencing your property in different head systems. There's more productivity there than most people could fully utilize. We can grow fuels this way. We can grow food this way. We can grow animal fodder this way. And we can grow things that we'll use for mulch, whether it's rough mulch or ground mulch for doing and enhancing fertility elsewhere. We can do all of that before we almost even touch our property. When we, if we build a system like this, especially if we start tying hugel culture into it, minimizing our irrigation requirements, growing deep-rooted perennials, where even if i got to run that much irrigation for the first couple of years till those roots establish, I'll do it right on just an acre or even two or three acres like I have. Once that's established, even if you have trouble in different parts, we just go in and we patch that particular area, it's a massive amount of food, and you're still looking at almost 100% of your property yet to be utilized. That's why I thought it was an important subject to bring up with you guys today. And it's also a great way that some of you guys that have like 40 acres and you're not sure what to do with it yet can start to get to get a handle on things. Hell, perimeter perimeter and acre in hedgerows, bring your, your annual crops, your tender annuals, your peppers and stuff like that, your corn, those things like that, into that acre. Put a couple dogs in that sucker and don't pay for fencing. Put in productive fencing. Or even put in fencing and add this productivity layer to it and then do another acre and then do another acre. And eventually you'll go, you know what, half of my 40 acres, I'm not even going to, I'm just going to leave it as pasture or let it turn. I'm not going to do anything with it. I don't, I'm out of, I don't need any more. And that's kind of what we want to get to. We want to get to a point where, especially people that have larger tracks can take some piece of their land and just say, that's zone five. That means I don't do jack out there. I hunt out there. I gather out there. Uh, if I need some timber, I might go out there and selectively harvest some timber. But I don't do nothing there. Nature runs that. Now I've got predator habitat. Now I've got a place for the animals that are pressuring my human systems to live and not have to pressure my systems. Now I've got control. Now I've got design implementation. And hedging is a way to do that. It's, so what I don't want you to take away from this is, you know, the, the only thing we all need to do is hedge, right? The, all the other things we talk about aren't important. Of course they're important. This is one component. When I talk about anything permaculture, and this is permaculture as it gets, by the way, today, I, I'm giving you articles of clothing that go in your wardrobe, okay? This is the way I heard Jeff Lawton describe it. And if you want to go out to a formal dinner, you go in there and you take out the black tie stuff. And if you want to go hunting, you pull out the camo and, and, and the boots, right? So you look at your system and you say, of all these things that I now have in this wardrobe, how do I want to dress my system? That's the best way to get a handle on it. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I don't know the answer, it's like there